your Bibles to Genesis 34. Uh, if you are using a pew Bible this morning, we're going to be on page 29. Um, as we work through this text this morning, it's possible you may have questions. Um, you can go to slido.com and uh, type in the code REVCDA, and we can take a look at those questions when we are finished. I am going to pray for us. God, we come into this place on Sunday mornings and it's, um, the sun is shining through the windows and there is conversation and the laughter of children and good coffee and friends and uh, the gathering of your people is a, just a delightful thing. Uh, and and then, then we are confronted with this text. Um, it's one of the most brutal depictions of, of violence in Scripture. And, um, and yet we are people that are under the authority of your word. We are people that would affirm that this is, is something divine from you and that as we travel through this book, of Genesis, this is where we are on this Sunday. And uh, God, I just trust that, that this has just been sovereignly orchestrated for today. The people in this room, um, that I need to hear these words, that I need to wrestle with these things, that we need to experience this darkness, and that you have a purpose in it. And I just pray that as we walk through this text, um, you would be glorified, uh, that we would hear your spirit speak to our hearts in whatever way you know we need to hear, uh, and that the church would be built up by your powerful word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, over half of women in this country will experience some kind of sexual violence against them in their lifetime. Um, that's also one-third of men. One in five women will be the victims of either attempted or completed rape in their lives. Of those, a third of them will experience this for the first time between the ages of 11 and 17. Statistically, this means that there are survivors of sexual violence in this room. But more than that, I have heard some of your stories, and I know for a fact that there are survivors of sexual violence in this room. And that is a horrifying reality. And so we come to this text this morning that I've already prayed and, and affirmed is the word of God with, with trembling. So what, what are we to do with this story of manipulation and violence? And I just, I trust that as we work through it, that, that the spirit of God will move in our midst and do a work. I don't have much of a, a, a succinct outline this morning, but we're just going to move in phases through the chapter and take a look at the different kinds of horrific sin that we see. So we start at the beginning in Genesis 34. Leah's daughter, Dinah, who Leah bore to Jacob, went out to see some of the young women of the area. When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, who was the region's chieftain, saw her, he took her and raped her. He became infatuated with Jacob's daughter, Dinah, and he loved the young girl and spoke tenderly to her. Give me this girl as a wife, he told his father. So Dinah is probably a teenager in this story. She goes out into the community to meet some of the other girls her age who live in this town. And then what happens? And, this, and there's a question here because if, if we are um, 
honest with ourselves, most of us don't read Hebrew. And so we are dependent on the English translation of the Bible. And translation is the first step of interpretation. We have a a language, the Hebrew Bible, and, and a group of translators get together and they try to figure out what it says and they turn it into English. This is why there are varieties of English translations with different wordings. And, and as, we are, as we are people of God's word, we have to remember that um, we are reliant on the interpretation of translators. So the Christian Standard Bible that we use to preach from here uh, translates this word rape. I think that's a good translation. Uh, but in other places in the Old Testament, it is used in just a, a more generic way to talk about humbling or disgracing someone. So any woman who was involved in a sexual relationship outside of a covenant marriage would have been labeled humbled or disgraced. And I think that matters because as we read these verses, it's kind of confusing what's going on. I think we can imagine sexual violence as a woman being assaulted in a dark parking lot or in the context of a drunken party. Um, and I, I apologize, I'm, we're, we're speaking primarily today about violence against women. And I, like I said, one third of men experience sexual violence and I wanna um, be cognizant of that as well. But we can imagine a man committing an assault who is, who is more physically powerful, an overwhelming act of violence against a woman and then leaving. But this isn't what happens in this text. It says that Shechem falls in love with Dinah. And I put that in quotes because I feel like that's pretty weak language there. But it it leaves us with questions. We don't have Dinah's perspective. But I think the reason that rape is a good translation is that it reminds us that sexual violence can also come in the form of coercion and seduction. We're living in the midst of this Me Too movement, and, and there's, there's problematic things about that, but in large part, that's a really good reckoning for our culture to be honest about sexual violence. And one of the things that has come out of that movement is this call for consent. And I've talked from this platform before about how the idea of consent is not good enough as a biblical sex ethic. We need something more robust than that, and the scriptures give us that, covenant faithfulness in marriage but it can't be less than that. Consent is, is, is part of that. And so even if we read this text and we see in Shechem's actions some kind of nonviolent seduction being accompanied by tender words and love and this desire to marry Dinah, the scripture's use of language here makes it clear that Shechem's actions are wicked. We see the same language that we've seen the entire book of Genesis of seeing and taking, which should immediately bring us back to Genesis chapter three in the garden when Eve sees the fruit and takes it. This is the paradigm, the kind of warning siren throughout Genesis that Moses uses to say, this is a bad thing that's happening right now. And I think this matters because if you have experienced a situation in which you have felt coerced or manipulated into sex, if you are in a relationship where this sort of thing happens and then is followed up with tender words, he's usually so sweet except when he's angry or when he's been drinking, this is not okay. This is abusive behavior. It is evil and sinful behavior, and it is not your fault. Abusive relationships are often marked by the abuser's emotional roller coaster. And if you find yourself in a place like this, if you resonate with Dinah this morning, I would just urge you to find someone to talk to. Come talk to me or Brian or someone else that you can trust who is a follower of Jesus that can help you get out of that situation. Maybe temporarily, maybe permanently. Because abuse is not okay. This is this event that Shechem starts in his lust that kicks off the rest of this story. And we begin to see manipulation. Verse 5, Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah, but since his sons were with his livestock in the field, he remained silent until they returned. 
Meanwhile, Shechem's father, Hamer, came to speak with Jacob. Jacob's sons returned from the field when they heard about the incident, and they were deeply grieved and very angry, for Shechem had committed an outrage against Israel by raping Jacob's daughter, and such a thing should not be done. Hamer said to Jacob's sons, My son Shechem has, in his, heart, has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. Intermarry with us. Give our, your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. Live with us. The land is before you. Settle here. Move about and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, grant me this favor and I'll give you whatever you say. Demand me a high compensation and gift. I'll give whatever you ask of me. Just give the girl to be my wife. The first thing we see in this section is something about Jacob. His attitude just seems a little bit off. For those of you that are dads with daughters, maybe you're going like, hmm, that feels a little weak, Jacob. That reaction is just not quite what I would expect. And we'll talk about that later. But we see his sons find out, and they are angry, and rightly so. Such a thing should not be done. But Hamer doesn't seem to think anything is wrong. Maybe this is just a, you know, kind of an unorthodox arrangement that the marriage has been consummated before the covenant has been made, but, but that's just a little detail, and it can be worked out. But the thing is, is, is Dinah has been put in a very difficult position, If she doesn't marry Shechem, it is unlikely that she will find anyone who will marry her after what he has done to her. And this is not right, but this is the reality of the culture that they live in, that a woman was expected to be a virgin or she was unmarriable. See, by assaulting Dinah, Shechem has made it very difficult for Jacob to say no to the marriage for the sake of the future of his daughter and her place in society it seems as though this has to move forward. And this is manipulation. Shechem is manipulating Jacob and his family. And then we see later on in verse 6, which we'll read in a minute, that that Dinah is still in Shechem's house and has probably been there for several days. And so what's going on? Is, Is she in love with Shechem? Is she just hanging out there because of the tender words and this relationship that's been sparked and romantic feelings? Or conversely, is she a hostage? Is she there against her will? We don't know. Neither does Jacob or his sons. And this is even greater manipulation. And as we reread through this section, Hamer quickly tries to shift the issue from his son's actions and Dinah's dishonor to an economic partnership. This is going to be the beginning of, of mingling our two tribes together. We'll be one big family But if you're Jacob's family, maybe you're thinking about chapter 27, verse 46, when we read, Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm sick of my life because of these Hethite girls. If Jacob marries someone from around here like these Hethite girls, what good is my life? See, the whole story of Jacob's life up to this point is shaped by his parents' desire that he not intermingle with the people of the land of Canaan. He was sent away to his uncle's home to find a wife years ago precisely because of this issue. And if you're an Israelite reading this, maybe in the time of Moses or later, you may be hearing the words of Deuteronomy 7. You must not intermarry with them and you must not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will swiftly destroy you. And this is important. Israel's separation from the nations wasn't ethnic. It was religious. Marriages with differing faith foundations create major problems. And this command is still in effect today. We are part of the Church of Jesus Christ, which is a multi-ethnic global community. Jesus demonstrates that he is inviting all people into his kingdom in the Gospels. Paul rejoices that ethnic barriers have been broken down and the church is one new people of God. And yet, he says in 1 Corinthians 7, a wife is bound as long as her husband is living, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to anyone she wants, only in the Lord. And we go badly astray when we ignore this command. You know, he's such a nice guy, and he said he'd go to church with me. She said she's a Christian. She thinks she got baptized when she was little. There's a warning here. Do not marry an unbeliever. It will go badly for you. 
And so these, are, these should be warning bells for Jacob's family. They can't consent to this. It's not a good idea. Hamer and Shechem don't see any problem either with the rape or the potential hostage situation or the commingling of tribes. And yet for Jacob's family, there's some major problems going on here. And this, is, this brings us again to more advice from Paul in 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be yoked together with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So does this mean that that as Christians, we're to go out and live in the woods and not have any contact with those who believe differently than us? No, I think it's, it's easy to show that Jesus' expectation for the church is that we would be in the midst of the unbelieving world and would love and serve them as the hands and feet of Jesus. But it does make clear that in Christ, we are operating from a radically different foundation than the rest of the world. And there is a point when partnership becomes impossible due to a lack of shared values. And we see this in our story because these two men who are proposing this union based on this sexual violence are totally cool with it. They don't see any problem with any of this process. And yet Jacob's family should know that this is all wrong. And maybe that, maybe that feels offensive. And maybe if, if you're um, not a Christian this morning or, or, or even if you are, you think like, well, that just, the idea that we're not supposed to partner with people at a certain, a certain extent just doesn't feel right, doesn't feel like our modern sensibilities tell us that that is not the way the world works. But really that is only helpful if faith isn't that important to you. If faith is not really a foundation. I'm working on remodeling my bathroom and uh, I've been building little walls and things. And, and there's a, if you, if you have a couple two straight two by fours, you should be able to set them on the ground and, and put them right next to each other and screw them together all the way up. But if, if one of those two by fours is on a foundation that's just a little bit crooked, The interesting thing is, is like a couple inches from the bottom, you won't notice. And a couple feet from the bottom, you can make it work. But once you get up to the top, they're going to be inches apart. And the problem with that is not what's happening up here. It's what's happening down there because the foundation is crooked. It's out of level. And so as we interact with the world around us, we have agreement with people because we are human beings. We have agreement with people because we are all Americans. We have agreement with people sometimes because we all live in North Idaho. But at some point, we are going to be too far apart to partner together. And the major problem that we have isn't really the disagreements that we have at the top. It's the foundation that we have at the bottom. If I am going to be someone who sees the world the way Jesus does, it's going to be fundamentally different than those in the world around me. So Hamer and Shechem attempt to manipulate Jacob's family into this arrangement. But manipulation can go both ways. Look at verse 13. Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamer deceitfully because he has defiled their sister Dinah. We cannot do this thing, they said to them. Giving our sister to an uncircumcised man is a disgrace to us. We will agree with you only on this condition. If all your males are circumcised as we are, then we will give you our daughters, take your daughters for ourselves, live with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Their words seemed good to Hamer and his son Shechem. The young man did not delay doing this because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most important in all his father's family. So Hamer and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city. These men are peaceful toward us, they said. Let them live in our land and move about in it, for indeed the region is large enough for them. Let's take their daughters as our wives and get our daughters to them. But the men will agree to live with us and be one people only on this condition if all our men are circumcised as they are. Won't their livestock and possessions and all their animals become ours? 
Only let's agree with them and they will live with us. So the first thing we see is Jacob's sons manipulating the Hivites. They make note of this problem with their families. They recognize that this this union isn't going to work and they, they recognize that it's a religious problem. And it's symbolized by circumcision. This outward sign of the covenant that they have made with their God is missing from the Hivites. Their allegiance is not to Yahweh. But Jacob's sons are missing part of this puzzle. In Exodus 12, we read, if an alien resides among you and wants to observe the Lord's Passover, every male in his household must be circumcised and then he may participate. He will become like a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person may eat it. If you are not Jewish and you live in Jewish territory and you want to participate in the expression of worship to Yahweh, the Passover feast, You are allowed to do that. You are invited into that, but you have to become a member of the covenant. You have to be circumcised because circumcision is not what makes you a part of the covenant. It is faith. It is allegiance to Yahweh. Circumcision is a sign of the covenant. And so the Hivite circumcision doesn't make them covenant partners because they have no interest in worshiping Yahweh, which is why this partnership is a bad idea. It's similar to our practice of baptism. Baptism is a symbol of being brought into the covenant community of the church. But we make sure before we baptize you that you're actually a Christian. We don't want to be baptizing people who do not follow Christ. Jacob's sons don't care, though, because they are doing some manipulation of their own. They are acting deceitfully. They intend to do these men harm. But then we see Hamer and Shechem again manipulating their own people. They are the leaders of this city. They want this marriage to satisfy Shechem's lust and Hamer's power play, and they pitch it to the men of the city, and they don't share anything about Shechem and Dinah. That's not important. Just all of the economic reward that the men of the city can expect. John Calvin, in his Genesis commentary, writes, It's a very common disease that men of rank who have great authority, while making all things subservient to their own private ends, feign themselves to be considerate for the common good and pretend a desire for the public advantage. He's saying back in the 1500s, powerful men used their authority to manipulate whole groups for their selfish ends. It's a good thing that doesn't happen anymore, right? We read in Proverbs 14, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. See, the personal character of Hamor and Shechem is ultimately going to be the source of the whole city's downfall. And this is really important for us, and we're we're inching our way closer to another uh, big election season, and it'll probably come up again, but there has been kind of an undercurrent in the Christian community in this country for the last six or so years that, that the personal morality of the people we vote for isn't that big a deal as long as their policies are good. And that's just not true. If we, if we bring people into leadership in our country with poor personal character, they will negatively affect the whole nation. So we saw lust and rape, manipulation, and now violence. All the men in 24 who had come to the city gates listened to Hamer and his son Shechem, and all those men were circumcised. On the third day, when they were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords, went into the unsuspecting city, and killed every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with their swords, took Dinah from Shechem's house, and went away. Jacob's sons came to the slaughter and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their flocks, herds, donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, and they captured all their possessions, dependents, and wives, and plundered everything in the houses. All these men are taken in by this promise of great wealth. All it's going to cost them is a little outpatient surgery. See, circumcision is intended to be a sign of sexual dependence on Yahweh. It's a a symbol that says Yahweh is the ruler over my family and my descendants. It's meant to be an incredibly intimate act of worship and consecration for a people. And the Hivites, they abuse it for wealth. And Simeon and Levi abuse it 
for vengeance. And this is another horrible reality that we see in the church. Recently, Patriarch Kirill of the Russian Orthodox Church has been promising young men a free ticket to heaven as if they sign up to fight in the Russian army against the people of Ukraine. He's using spiritual authority to abuse and manipulate. We all know stories of, of pastors in our, in our own country, in our own kind of tribes, using their authority to manipulate people with spiritual power and even commit acts of sexual violence against those in their care. This is wickedness. But even on a smaller level, think about the motivation of someone who, who recognizes in a community like ours, a lot of the movers and shakers in North Idaho are Christians, a lot of the church communities are filled with business leaders and people that you should get to know if you want to move ahead. I'll just join a church for the networking opportunity. Maybe it's a lesser sin, but it's a sin of the same kind. Using the worship of the people of God for your own abusive ends. Our faith practices and our communities are vehicles that God uses to create meaning in our lives, and they are easily manipulated for terrible ends. Dinah has been raped. This is an extreme violation of her person and her family's honor. And under the worst possible circumstances, we have, nobody's really asked enough questions here, but assuming this was a violent, non-consensual crime, Shechem may deserve the death penalty under the laws of the time. That outcome might be considered justice, but this isn't what Simeon and Levi do. They kill all the men of the city. Their brothers come and join them and plunder all of its goods and capture all of the women and children. And their response to this crime against their sister is not justice, but violent, disproportionate vengeance. This is one of the many examples in the scriptures of why human beings aren't really good at meeting out ultimate justice. This is why blood feuds start. If, if you may be familiar with the Hatfields and the McCoys. They're kind of part of our American folk history. They're two families from the 1860s that started feuding with each other, and their feud ended up killing 30 in their families. Nine of them went to prison for life for their murders. Why? Because two guys were arguing about which one of them owned a pig. That's how it started. And it escalated, and it got worse, and it got worse, and it got worse. Again, Proverbs 14, there's a way that seems right to a person, but it ends in the way of death. Simeon and Levi thought they were doing what was right, but they were wrong. This is why we are given such clear instructions from Jesus about not retaliating on forgiveness, on allowing God to fight the battle on our behalf, because we are just not good at doing it ourselves. Matthew 5, Jesus says, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus' words are often overlooked, but they are so clear that we are called to be people who do not retaliate. Paul doubles down in Romans 12, friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. So who are the victims here? Besides Dinah, of course, a whole bunch of men that had nothing to do with this crime are dead. All of their families have lost a husband and a father. A whole town's worth of women and children are now destitute. And what happens to them? We don't know. Does Jacob, do Jacob's sons keep them all as slaves? Do they sell them to other people as slaves? Do they just leave them out in the wilderness? We aren't told. In an effort to cor correct an injustice, these men have created a far greater injustice. And then we get to Jacob and the sin of cowardice. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me. 
making me odious to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. We are few in number. If they unite against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they answered, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Now it seems like we can start to put together this uneasy feeling we had about Jacob earlier. Again, if you're a father, if you have a daughter, you read about Jacob's inaction and you just maybe wonder like, what's going on here? Why doesn't he seem to care? And now we see that Jacob is afraid. After after all that he's been through with Laban, with the angel of the Lord, with Esau, he still doesn't want to do anything that would make him an enemy. He's not trusting in God. He's fearful of people. We can also maybe put together the sense that Dinah, who is called Leah's daughter more than once in this chapter, wasn't a real priority for Jacob. Simeon and Levi are Leah's sons and Dinah's full brothers. Gordon Wenham remarks, it was Jacob's failure to act that provoked Simeon and Levi to behave in such an extreme way. He had not loved Leah or her daughter Dinah, but they did. Jacob here, as much, as much as he has progressed in his journey with God and been changed by his faith, is still acting selfishly and cowardly. And we can fall into this trap. It feels really enlightened sometimes to be above the fray, to not, to not get into arguments that are going on around us. And sometimes that's wisdom, Sometimes the right thing to do is not say anything at all, but sometimes that's cowardice. I've been listening to a fascinating podcast called The Witch Trial of J.K. Rowling, and it's about um, J.K. Rowling and how uh, she has gotten into trouble in recent years for speaking up against um, some of the more radical beliefs of the uh, trans community and their push for uh, single-sex spaces in restrooms and sporting events and lockers, and, and her conviction that those moves create opportunities for women to be harmed. And she's spoken up against that, and she has been vilified by many people who you would think would be her allies as a, as a progressive feminist. And one of the things she says in this podcast is so many people said, you know what, just don't say anything. Have your beliefs, just keep it to yourself. It's not worth it to say anything. And she did that for several years and, it, and it, she talks about just the anguish that she was under recognizing that she had a voice, she had a platform, she had an opportunity to speak out for vulnerable women and girls and she finally had to. And this is what, got her into all of the public trouble that she has come under. Sometimes the position that we are in, the access that we have to certain things is God's invitation to us to speak up and speak out. And Jacob doesn't do this to protect his own daughter. But this also demonstrates a lack of imagination that we often have when we talk about injustice. Levi and Simeon, they justify their actions as compared to Jacob's doing nothing. What else are we supposed to do? There's this course of action that we have taken or nothing at all. And that's, that's just never true. I have a conviction, and, and this, isn't a, this, isn't a, uh, um, this, isn't, this isn't something that I think we should divide for. There's a, a variety of convictions in this room regarding this, and, and I'm happy to... Um, not require anyone else to to hold this, but I I have a very strong conviction that Jesus forbids his people from killing. I I just read the New Testament, and I don't think that's an option for us. And I have conversations with people who don't hold to that view, and they very often push back then, like, so when something bad happens, you're just not gonna do anything then? And that's so interesting to me because we as a people have not been formed to think creatively about how to fight for justice without resorting to violence. We as a culture are so shaped by the need to violently react to evil that we see no other paradigm for 
justice. And I believe that both locally and internationally. I, I think um, we, we just don't think, uh, we just have no tools for thinking about what it would look like to be a nation that, that led in the cause for justice around the world without immediately dropping bombs and shooting missiles and firing drones. But I just, I believe that if we are going to be a countercultural force that brings the peace of Jesus into the world, we have to learn how to utilize tools other than either violence on the one hand or apathy on the other. Jacob doesn't respond to this injustice and Jacob's sons respond with disproportionate vengeance and ultimately justice just isn't done. So we get to the end of this chapter, one of the most brutal stories in Genesis. It is dark in every respect. All of the men in it act in dishonorable ways and all of the women and children are victimized because of it. And what comes to my mind is John 5.39. Jesus says, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. And yet they testify about me, Jesus says. So where in the world is Jesus here? Where is Jesus in Genesis 32 or 34? Wendy Stringer in her comments on this passage say that, says that God is not mentioned in Genesis 34. At first, listen, the story sounds godless, but this is the beautiful thing about Dinah's story. God, in a sense, is saying, I will not condone this. He has commanded nothing, approved nothing. Even Jacob's and his sons do not dare invoke the name of Yahweh. See, Moses is, is led by the Holy Spirit to write this story down without mentioning God at all. What we do see is a group of men who utterly fail in their protection of this young, vulnerable woman. And I think where we find Jesus in this story is in the contrast. Dinah's father fails her. Dinah's older brothers fail her. And yet we have a father who never fails us. In Romans 8, Paul says, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back at fear, Instead, you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And a little later on, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. We have this promise in the scripture that while a human father may or may not live up to our expectations, our heavenly Father, God, always takes care and never fails. We also see that we have an older brother that never fails us. Hebrews 2, for the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. One of the beautiful things about our relationship to God is that Jesus is our brother. Jesus who is the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity uh, by um, his own being, is the older brother in the family that we are adopted into. And he will never fail us. He tells us in Matthew 28 that he will never forsake us. He will be with us to the ends of the age. So where does, where does that leave us this morning? For some of us, this has been a really difficult text because of real harm that you have experienced. Maybe you've been reacting to the memory of trauma that you have experienced this morning and you're, you're tempted to shut down, to close yourself off from it in self-protection. I texted a friend of mine this week who has experienced some of this personally about what are, what are some helpful things to remember when that trauma bubbles up and, and, and seeks to rob you of joy and, and, and bring you into um, anxiety and, and depression. And they said, our God is stronger than our suffering. He is with us. 
He loves us and is capable of carrying our burdens for us. And our fear is a reminder to go back to Him. And I would just encourage you, if if you are someone who's experienced any of this kind of traumatic pain and you are experiencing this fear as we even just read about it in the Scriptures, that that's a check engine light for you to run to the Lord in prayer, to give it back up to Him. And maybe that's something that you just make a practice of as you work through it. For others of us, it's a reminder that we are part of a family who have some members who have experienced this kind of pain. I know I I, I talk to many people who who are are just, who've just never thought about that. In a room this size with this many people, the life experiences, that maybe maybe you've grown up in a relatively safe and, and comfortable space and praise God for that but it can blind you to the fact that some of us haven't and that there's pain in this room. And for those of us with that story, it's important to realize that we get to walk with those in this community that are carrying that kind of pain in love, without judgment and care. Maybe you're in a third category this morning. Maybe you've participated in the abuse of others in some way. Maybe you're feeling guilty about the things that we've briefly touched on because you know of these things, but from the other side, from the other perspective. And Jesus wants to carry your burden too. He wants to forgive you and redeem you from that sin and the judgment that you feel over your own actions. Maybe you've never heard that before. Maybe, you've never, maybe nobody knows what you've done and you just carry it deep inside. The guilt that you've created for yourself by harming other people is real, but it's not something that you have to carry. It's something that is being used in your life to push you towards the cross of Christ. Jesus wants to take that from you, forgive you of your sins and heal you too. And, and lastly, just we, we have to remember as we accept the call to follow Christ, we are not promised freedom from pain in this life. But we are promised that Jesus will never leave us or turn his back on us and that God will carry us completely into his kingdom one day. That he will wipe all the tears from our eyes, that he will right all the wrongs and that he will carry out perfect justice um, because he's the only one that really knows how. Let's do some Q&R. What are we to glean from Jacob's curse on Simeon and Levi in Genesis 49 in connection with these murders they commit? I, I think we're to, what we're to glean is that what they did was wicked. It, w- it would be easy to read this text and assume that Simeon and Levi are in the right because uh, they acted against the injustice when Jacob didn't. But Jacob, in his prophetic blessing of his sons in Genesis 49, where he speaks to each of them individually, curses Simeon and Levi, the the second and third born in the house. And and if you remember the genealogy, Reuben is the firstborn, and he's going to do something awful in a couple chapters. He gets knocked out of running for the blessing. Simeon and Levi, the second and third born, do this, and they get knocked out of running for the blessing. And the fourth son, Judah, is the one whose line is the line of the Messiah, because The first three sons acted wickedly. And I think it's Jacob's condemnation of them. If if politicians' morals matter, then I don't think Christians can vote on a national level since manipulation isn't a moral good. Is there anyone we can vote for? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, seriously. That's a good question. there There are a few good people in national politics 
But my conviction is that it's very hard to get far at a national level and be an upright person. Um, and that's not, a, that's not a partisan opinion. I, I, think, I think everybody has to, um, most everybody has to sacrifice their morality in order to be famous as a national politician. Is it wrong to defend yourself in court if settlement outside court is not possible? Are we called to settle regardless of the other person's demands? Um, as a generality, this is kind of hard to answer. I think there's probably some, some you'd have to look at the specifics. I, I think Paul is pretty clear about suing other Christians. I think we ignore that part in 1 Corinthians. I, I, he, he seems to think that it's better to just allow ourselves to be wrong than to take each other to... Um, secular courts. I don't think we give enough thought to that as a serious possibility. Um, but in general, um, I think there, there probably are times to use the legal system that we have been granted to defend ourselves, uh, nonviolently, obviously. Um, the, the texts that I quoted from Jesus have some very specific applications about being forced into situations against your will, and I, I think those would have been, um, those have some, some, some cultural context that, that don't map on to today super well. Um, I think a better question, instead of is it wrong, would be is it always right? And I think if we, if we took questions about defending ourselves, um, standing up for our rights, uh, using the capabilities of the court systems or the laws to, to stand up for what is due us, if instead of saying, is that wrong, if we, if we spent more time thinking, is this something that God wants me to do? Is this a good idea? Instead of oftentimes just assuming that of course we would take ourselves to the furthest extent of the law in order to defend ourselves. I know you're a pacifist, but do you get that from Scripture or do you read Scripture with that lens? I'm not decided, but don't see it in Scripture as a whole. Um, I've come to this view in the last several years because of reading Scripture. Um, I don't... I, obviously, there is, there is a change in ethic in some sense between the Old Testament and the New Testament, I think. I think Jesus kind of ups the ante on what we're called to be as, as, as people in the world, and I think his church um, is called to, um, and the way I would say it simply is just not kill people. Um, that's a complicated thing, and we, we don't have time to talk about it deeply. I'd love to talk about it more, but like, I, I, don't, like, I don't believe that you know, like carrying pepper sprays bad. I don't believe that even like self-defense martial arts are bad. Like, I, think, I think you should be able to protect yourself. I just don't think we're given the authority as Jesus people to, uh, to kill people. I think, I think that's something that, that we reserve for God. And I think that gets really complicated when you start talking about the broader world. But um, I think it's worth thinking deeply on. And, and yeah, I, I recent, I, that's been a recent change in my view um, due to study of Scripture. Why praise God for one person having an easy life in contrast to those who've been sexually assaulted? Well, I, I mean, I'm not sure I understand that question. Sexual assault is an unmitigated evil, and I don't know why you, would, you wouldn't rejoice in that um, in the sense that um, it's always a bad thing. And so... To, to say that someone has been spared from that in the providence of God, I think is an overwhelming good. And I would, I would praise God for that. I'm not sure, maybe I'm misunderstanding. If, if that's not your question, you can come talk to me later. I was a victim when I was a boy and there was no justice for me. I used violence and manipulation to free myself. Would you have not done that retrospectively? I mean, I think I would say, first of all, there is justice for you at the cross. Either 
that the penalty for the wickedness that was done against you has been paid by Jesus on the cross in the salvation of your attacker or in final judgment when your attacker is consigned to hell because of their wickedness. With regard to violence and manipulation to free yourself, I'm, I feel like that's probably not a de- enough detail to really like say much. I think there is... Um, there's a lot to be worked through in a situation. And like I said, I don't, I don't think Christians should kill people. If you killed your attacker, I, we should talk. I, but um, I think there is um, yeah, there's just a lot going on there. And I'd love to talk with you more personally about that because I don't think I have enough details to speak anymore um, with any kind of wisdom into that. That's a lot. There are tons of really good questions, and um, these are heavy, heavy topics. I'm just I'm grateful for everybody's willingness to to ask. Probably didn't give you any good answers because that's kind of um, it's hard when there's so much specificity in, in some of the questions. But again, I'd love to have some more conversation with you if you'd like. As we transition, we're going to take communion. In this story, the the Hivites, they they wanted to leverage this deeply meaningful expression of faith, circumcision, for their own gain. Uh, They were unworthy of it because they didn't have faith in Yahweh. They were were using it to manipulate. And uh, the communion meal is is similar. At at our church, we, we open it to everyone but it is an expression of loyalty to Jesus Christ. It's an acknowledgement of your sacrifice or of his of your acceptance of his sacrifice on your behalf. In 1 Corinthians Paul warns that some in the church were abusing this gift by taking it unworthily. Their lifestyle, specifically their treatment of those that were poor and vulnerable was out of alignment with their profession of faith. And so that's That's a warning to all of us this morning that we wouldn't be using this um, expression of faith in Christ unworthily, that we would come to it checking our hearts and partaking of communion as men and women who are giving our allegiance to Jesus. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.